history of European Theatre Podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 75, Lupe de Vega, the world's most prolific playwright. Last time, I sketched the development of the Spanish Renaissance Playhouse, the Corral, and before that, the general development of Spanish Renaissance theatre. That development was characterised by two strands, the popular theatre represented by Lupe de Rueda and Juan de la Cueva, and a strand that was the inheritor of classical theatre, represented by the work of Cristobal de Verruez and Miguel de Cervantes, among others. Now we come to the peak of the achievement of Spanish theatre in the Renaissance, which is not only personified in the playwright Lupe de Vega, but is, by and large, thanks to him personally. Like many high achievers of his age, it's sometimes difficult to untangle the facts of his life from fictions generated by intentional hyperbole, self-promotion, over-generous praise and, well, just the passage of time. This is my version of his life, taken from several sources that I usually find to be generally reliable, or at least believable. But it is just one version and others will tell his story in a slightly different way. On a more positive note, we do have more information about Lupe than we do for many of his English contemporaries, Shakespeare included. But there is still much uncertainty and speculation over the details. And before getting into his life and times, I have to deal with the bold claim that heads up this episode. The world's most prolific playwright. Can that be true, or even provable? Well, if we take some famous names, we can try and compare. Numbers vary a bit depending on how collaborations, fragments and lost works are counted, but here are some examples. Going way back, we know that Aristophanes wrote 40 plays. Sophocles wrote over 100, with only 7 surviving. Euripides managed 92. Menander also gets credited with over 100, Terence with just 6 and Plautus with 130. Moving on to Lupe's contemporaries and near-contemporaries, we have Christopher Marlowe with seven, Thomas Decker with more than 40, and of course Shakespeare with 38 plays to his name. Moving on again, Moliere wrote over 30 plays, Racine managed 12. And in more modern times, the prolific George Bernard Shaw produced 60 plays, Noel Coward 65, Rattigan 19, and Tom Stoppard a creditable 30 so far by my count. So, I think I can stand by the statement, bold as it is, it seems unlikely that anyone else will ever exceed his output. But what of that output, the work of Lupe de Vega, or Lupe Felix de Vega Caprio, to give him his full name? Well, by some, he's credited with over 2,200 plays. 483 of these are full length. Less exuberant estimates say 1,800, and some with a mean streak say only 1,500. Either way, it's an output of volume that earns him the title and surely can't be challenged, even if the lowest number is correct. How did he do it? Well, his long life certainly helped. He lived into his 70s and remained active until the end. Even late in life, he was said to be producing two new plays a week to feed the theatre managers and their audiences at the corrals. And we should not forget that during his downtime from playwriting, he also wrote novels, short stories, narrative verse and poems, of which some 1,600, yes, 1,600, were sonnets. He also wrote tracts on religion, an essay on theatrical practice and an autobiography. 
Of the plays, about 500 have survived in manuscript and printed form. His versatility is unquestionable, and the quality of his work for one so prolific is consistently high. So he was a man who spent all his time at his desk, scratching the inked quill on parchment, squinting by candlelight through the night. No, no, put that image out of your head. This was a man who lived a life to the full, and still found time to condense his feelings and ideas about it into the various literary forms he wrote in. His life reads like an adventure story, and I'll start right at the beginning. Lupe's parents came from the Asturia region in the northwest of the peninsula, but had moved to Madrid by the time he was born in 1562. He was their second son and third child. The move suggests that his parents were not quite peasants, but they were certainly of lowly origins, yet between them they produced a prodigy. His father was a trained embroiderer, probably working in gold and silver filigree rather than cloth, and used his skill to raise the family up a little, but it was short-lived. When he died in 1578, when Lupe was just in his mid-teens, the business passed to the husband of Lupe's sister, and the other children were left impoverished. His parents' background, and some degree of poverty, certainly helped Lupe in later life once he came to playwriting, where he showed an understanding for characters from the countryside and the lower levels of society. Lupe's legend says that by the age of five he could read and write in his native tongue, could memorise Latin and had already composed verses. Whatever the exact truth was, he was undoubtedly a brilliant child. Under the guidance of a wealthy uncle, he was placed into good schools. One of these was a Jesuit school, where the teaching of Latin was still a central tenant and the works from classical Rome, including plays, were used as part of that education. As we've already heard in previous episodes, the Jesuits were not averse to putting on performances of plays for the entertainment of fellow students. So Lupe was getting a good grounding in theatrical history and technique and, most probably, some practical acting experience too. It is said that at the age of 12 he wrote a four-act play, a piece called The True Lover. Although he seems to have excelled at school both academically and in the physical arts like fencing, music and dancing, he and a friend ran away, aged 15, to explore the country. He headed to the northwest, where his parents came from, so perhaps it was a journey tied up with the death of his father. But throughout his life he displayed a relentlessness of spirit and an inquiring mind that maybe that was all that was needed for him to want to escape from the strictures of the school life. He joined the army and fought in one battle against the Portuguese, and was then taken into the household of the Bishop of Avila and was sent to university. Later he claimed that he was not a good scholar, being easily distracted from the subject at hand and already knowing that writing was going to be his life. But he completed his degree and he may have undertaken further studies at Salamanca. Following university, he began to study for the priesthood, but fell in love and gave it up. Later he admitted that his time as a student was often interrupted by erotic thoughts, so perhaps a celibate life was never going to be for him. Once married, and by his own admission blindly in love, he still opted to join Philip II's military mission to the Azores in 1583. The fighting was brief, and he was back in Madrid before the end of the year. There is a suggestion that he was still struggling to settle, and spent his time roaming Madrid with a group of similarly aimless young men, looking for drink, women and trouble. He was arrested for minor offences several times, but then things changed for him. 
He found work with the theatre manager Geronimo Velasquez, supplying him with the now preferred form of theatrical entertainment, the Commedia, the full-length, three-act, tragicomic play. At the same time, he commenced an affair with his employer's married daughter Elena, who was an actress and by all accounts a great beauty. Despite the affair being a passionate and sometimes tempestuous one, it seems that they managed to keep it quiet, or at least known but tolerated, for four years. But when Elena's father finally discovered the deception, he was incensed. That was soon followed by the death of Elena's husband, an actor in the troupe, which didn't help matters. Lupe expected her to come to him now that she was free, but she preferred the attentions of a rich businessman. With that, the liaison was ended, and a bitter Lupe wrote a series of satirical and uncomplimentary verses about his ex-employer, the family and the actors in the troupe. They took him to court at the end of 1578. The story has it that he was arrested while attending a performance at the Corral de la Cruz. He was thrown into prison awaiting trial. His case wasn't helped when he continued to write against the family from his cell and in 1588 he was sentenced to imprisonment and an eight-year banishment from Castile. Ever the ladies' man, before he left for his period of exile he eloped with a 16-year-old daughter of a noble family, Isabel de Urbina, whose father was the Earl Marshal to Philip II. In some versions the elopement is described more worryingly as an abduction of the young lady and a great court scandal at the time. I could also find no mention of the death of his first wife, but assume this must have been the case. Whatever the truth of that affair, Lupe and Isabel were soon married, and she became his muse for his poetry, where he referred to her as Belisa. His enforced exile from Madrid and his rollercoaster personal life affected him greatly, and looking back at the events through the lens of old age, he used them in his 1632 play Dorothea, which many consider to be his finest. In 1588, he was still only 25 years old, but already famous, and already the best playwright in Spain. Cervantes, not a little begrudgingly, admired his skills, dubbing him the Phoenix of Wits. In exile in Valencia with his new wife, he continued to write plays at speed and enjoyed the literary circles that had gathered there. Valencia was already known as the hub for appreciation of Italian theatre and the romantic plays Lupe produced from there began to reflect an Italian influence. But in the end, he couldn't resist the pull of Madrid and preemptively returned to the capital before the term of his banishment was completed. This was not without risk. He could have been sent to the galleys to complete his sentence, but he somehow avoided this. His return was soured by the death of his young daughter. With his term of banishment now formally expired, he took up life in Madrid, modelling himself as a cavalier and working for the Duke of Alba. He wrote plays for various Madrid-based companies and other cities too, and soon cemented his reputation as a reliable, witty and clever dramatist. Another daughter was born. In 1588, Philip II resolved to send his armada to England. Unlike many in the wave of patriotism that swept the capital, Lupe joined up, serving on a ship called the San Juan. He was lucky that it was a ship that survived the harrying by the English fleet under Sir Francis Drake, the treacherous journey around the north of Scotland, and the atrocious weather as the remains of the fleet returned home. His brother was not so fortunate and returned badly wounded. Through all of this great adventure, he wrote a long narrative poem, The Beauty of Angelica 
This was complete by the time he returned after the six-month voyage that was eventful and dangerous but ultimately achieved none of its aims and weakened Spanish power in relation to England for many years to come. The accounts of his life in Madrid after the Armada vary, but it's likely that he took up with an actress before his wife died. He then met another actress, Michaela de Luzon, and started what would become a long-term relationship with her. He had four children with her and wrote many love sonnets to her. She was probably the truest love of his life, but he was serially unfaithful to her and had several liaisons during this time with her, and most probably throughout his life. In 1590, he married the daughter of a meat and fish merchant who came with a considerable dowry. The word in Madrid was that he had married for money and was bitterly disappointed when no dowry was forthcoming. The rumour mill in the capital ground on and the prominent poet Francisco Quevedo wrote comic verses directed at Lupe saying that he had married for meat and fish. His success and lifestyle had certainly gained him some enemies. Despite his recent marriage, Lupe continued to see Michaela, who bore him another child between the two that his new wife carried. He continued to produce plays for the companies in Madrid and other cities, until King Philip II, who was close to death and with an eye on ensuring his own eternal salvation, closed the theatres for the benefit of the morals of the people, as his decree put it. Always chasing his next income, Lupe quickly found employment as a secretary with a couple of marquis, the prohibition on theatres lasted for a year, at which point Lupe happily returned to writing plays for the hungry audience. In 1606, Cervantes published the first part of Don Quixote. In the prologue to this great work, the author included several verses against Lupe, continuing the literary spat that had been ongoing for several years. From 1607, when he was 45, and until his death, Lupe worked as the confidential secretary and counsellor to Luis Fernandez de Cordoba, the Duke of Sessa. They developed a deep friendship and exchanged many letters, which are the source of much of the information about Lupe's later life. And all this time, he churned out plays. As the new century approached, he was admired, moderately wealthy, and as settled as he ever could be in his private life, if the aforementioned arrangements could be considered settled and he had several noblemen asking to be his patron. He returned to Madrid in 1610, and then three years later was widowed again. This event seems to have prompted a caring turn towards his children. He gathered them all, legitimate and illegitimate, into one household, and appears to have been genuinely concerned for their welfare. He also took up priestly studies again, and became not a full priest, but something like a deacon. The position was called being in minor orders at the time, but it's now largely been discontinued. Not that this stopped him writing plays or enjoying more earthly pleasures. He made a hasty exit from Madrid, apparently because of a number of women who were harassing him, and travelled across the country, never stopping long in any one city. Despite the disruption, he continued to fulfil commissions with his now famous rapidity and equally regarded quality something even Cervantes was forced to admire, despite their animosity. In Valencia again, he took up with another actress, Lucia de Salcedo, who he dubbed the Mad One, thanks to her frequent temper tantrums. Then back in Madrid, there was Dona Marta de Navarre, a married woman who, despite that inconvenience, bore him another child. He was now 60 years old, and she, whom he called Amaryllis in his poems, was much younger, 
But she began legal proceedings against her husband, no small matter for a woman at that time, in an effort to be able to legitimise her position with Lupe. She was probably the second and last great love of his life. One has to wonder how he reconciled these behaviours with an apparently genuinely pious attitude towards his position in the church and with the role that he was playing within the Inquisition. It's reported that he regularly punished himself to the point of drawing blood, but whatever the truth of that and whatever guilt he felt, his behaviour did not demonstrably change. Publicly, he continued to be honoured, and his work enjoyed despite the inconsistencies in his personal life. Indeed, about this time, he was honoured by Pope Urban VIII, who awarded him with an honorary doctorate in theology and made him a member of the Order of St John of Jerusalem. It was the last great productive period of his life, and at the time he reviewed his career saying that he had completed 900 plays, 12 books on several subjects, prose and verse, and so many individual papers on various subjects that are yet to be printed and will never be printed and had acquired enemies, censors, traps, envies, notes, rebukes and cautions. Although he continued to write through his sixties, they were not a happy time for him. His popularity declined thanks to a new generation of playwrights finding their voice. He even suffered a couple of plays that were not well received at all, something that would have been unthinkable just a decade ago. Donna Marta went blind, then insane and then died. One daughter joined a convent, giving him much joy, while another eloped with a cavalier, much to his distress. He was hard hit by the death of a son who was lost at sea. He struggled on and published some poetry, and more was prepared for the printer. But now he lived a quieter life, for the first and only time. In the late August of 1635, when he was aged a respectable 73 years, he got up one morning, said Mass and tended his garden, before going to a discussion being held on medicine and philosophy. During the debate he fainted and was carried to his home, where, in accordance with medical practice at the time, he was bled. The following day he sat up in bed, he wrote a poem and a sonnet, but when the court doctor attended him later that day, he advised that the last rites be administered. The following day, Lupe wrote a will, leaving his estate to his daughter Feliciana, and greeted a few friends and well-wishers. He died at 5.15 that afternoon. His death was mourned from princes of the church, through the nobility, down to actors and the public who loved his work. His funeral rites lasted for nine days, and was the most prominent funeral of its time. The procession to his resting place to the church of San Sebastian was diverted to pass by his daughter's convent so that she could pay her last respects too. But don't go looking for his tomb there. His body was removed and placed in a common grave some years later when the Duke of Sessa stopped paying the fee. 200 authors contributed to volumes of work published in Madrid and Venice in his memory. Cervantes called him a monster of nature and meant it as a compliment to a man he never liked and saw as a rival, but who was, in respect of the theatre at least, in a league all of his own. But I suspect for Lupe, the greatest accolade was that for the Spanish theatre-goer, his name was synonymous with work of the highest quality. The expression, it is by Lupe, used as praise for high-quality work, outlived the dramatist by many years. In many ways, the life of Lupe de Vega was a great one, but this is also a troubled and troublesome life by modern standards. 
His behaviour in his private life would certainly have got him cancelled in today's world and his work shunned. But of course, he lived in a different time, where failings were forgiven or at least tolerated, where a woman's position was mostly defined by her father and her husband, where popes could be corrupt and worldly and kings heedless of the struggles of their people. At such a distance, it's not my place to condone, forgive or even hold Lupe to account, but it does mean that we have to separate the work from the man, which, I think, is not so hard when we're talking about a life lived some 400 years ago. So what was so special about the plays of Lupe de Vega? He did not invent the Commedia, but he did fashion it into a distinctive form which banished the Aristotelian ideals that many in Spain were trying to promote as the truest dramatic form. Commedia is often referred to as tragicomedy, and in many cases it is. But in Lupe's hands, it came to mean also pure comedy or pure tragedy. In this way, Commedia comes to mean simply the form of the full-length play in three acts. Lupe was above all else versatile in his plays, so for him there was no conformity of subject matter. He wrote plays based on Bible stories, Spanish legends, Italian novels, the lives of saints, medieval myths, contemporary 17th century life and ancient mythology and Spanish history. Within these plays he created realistic characters that relied less on the stock characters of the past and who spoke in language appropriate to their station. As we have seen, he was not the first to do this, but he refined it and displayed an understanding of the variations within language that are used by real people as a signature motif of his work. The idea that Commedia is tragicomic comes from the blending of tragedy and comedy and that the followers of Aristotle said could not be merged. Lupe showed in many works that in life the two elements do merge, just as the highborn interact with the lowborn, and therefore they could be represented on stage together. He acknowledged that in life tragedy can be tinged with comedy, and comedy can be a defence from the effects of tragedy. It's not ever that there has to be a dramatic flip from one to the other. They coexist in time and space, and are not mutually exclusive. Many in his audience were ready to accept this, but not all. Broadly speaking, it was the academically minded who raised objections and looked to a return to the formal division of tragedy and comedy. That debate continued to rage in these circles, in debates, academic publications, pamphlets and even in a satirical libel against Lupe during the first quarter of the 17th century. But in the day-to-day life of the theatre, the Commedia ruled the chorales. In 1609, Lupe became concerned or irritated enough by the academics to write a defence of the form that he had championed and popularised almost single-handedly. In The New Art of Playwriting in This Age, he, not surprisingly, robustly defends the new Spanish theatre and pours scorn on the dogged adherence to Aristotle. He points out that of the 483 plays he had written by that time, all but six defied the classical precepts, but worked on stage. Proof enough, he felt, that what mattered was not the form of a drama, but its content and its function, its effect on the audience. Given his success and popularity, it's difficult to disagree with him. Showing all the independence of mind that was the hallmark of his career, he said, When I have to write a comedy, I lock away the precepts with six keys. 
I banish Plautus and Terence from my study, and I write in accordance with the art which was devised by those who aspired to applause of the audience, whom it is but just to honour in their folly, since it is they who pay for it. Calling the audience foolish could mean that he wasn't so certain about the direction he was taking Spanish theatre in, but it's generally taken to be a sop to his intended audience, the academics. No one really doubts that his heart was in the popular theatre. But he doesn't like the idea of completely abandoning the past either, and perhaps there's a hint of a grubbiness about chasing the popular audience. Maybe, and reconciliation of such dilemmas in life was not unknown to him. Perhaps it is because of these dilemmas that he would like to have seen some compromise between the academics and the tastes of the masses. But the truth is that this was never likely to happen, and he obliquely recognised this when he called for, at the very least, the unities of time and place to be ignored, so that the action of the plays could become more realistic even within the remaining unities. As far as the poetry of a play is concerned, he advocated both the Italian and Spanish forms that were in common use, but suggested more use of the Spanish forms to replace the long-form Italian verse that was often used. He was also guilty of using these in his own plays, which is perhaps understandable as he learnt much of his dramatic technique through the Italian examples. For all of the advocacy of Spanish stories, traditions and verse, he still looked to the Italians as the guiding light of the cultural advance, and this tempered his ideas for a truly Spanish theatre. By releasing playwrights from the Aristotelian rules, Lupe allows that there is the potential for a freer form of drama, but that has its own risks, as some of the concision enforced by Aristotle is lost. Fortunately, Lupe could see that pitfall and was able to curtail these freedoms in his own work when necessary. His plays are exceptionally well-crafted, both in their dramatic action and in the poetry and prose used in them. He is quite prescriptive about when the different poetic forms should be used and lays down clear rules for the five most popular of the time. For example, he says that a ten-beat syllabic form called decima is best used for plaintive speeches and expressions of dissatisfaction and grievance, or that the sonnet should only be used in monologues and as a tool to generate suspense. Playwrights of the Commedia followed his lead, and in subsequent decades many rules were developed for the use of different verse forms in plays. The Spanish audience had a good understanding and a common love for good poetry, so the playwrights worked hard on the language they used in their plays and the way they used it. In time, the Italian and Spanish verse forms became very blended, and the playwrights skilled at moving from one form to another as the action demanded. It can't be doubted that Lupe de Vega holds a special place in Renaissance theatre, but he remains a difficult character to pin down. Playwright, poet, author, soldier, adventurer, religious cleric, husband, inquisitor, father, philanderer, all of the above and more. He was able to reconcile these apparently conflicting lives and still produce a vast amount of high-quality work that shaped a major strand of Renaissance period theatre and left a legacy in Spanish and European theatre that can be traced through to the Baroque and beyond. He was a creative genius, but one who stood on the shoulders of those who had gone before. Cristobal de Verruez was a significant influence on Lupe. It was a debt that he recognised late in his life when he credited Verruez for having laid the foundations for the Commedia in his famous tragedies, as he put it. 
Those five plays do indeed move the form on from imitations of Greek and Roman tragedy to something closer to tragicomedy. Virues was a Valencian, and the two years Lope spent there in 1589 and 90 seem to have been decisive in shaping his ideas. Lupe then added to the movement started by Verrues by taking elements of the cloak and dagger play popularised by Bartolomé de Torres Naro and the elements of Spanish myth and legend championed by Juan de la Cueva. And by merging and mixing these elements, he created a form that was not exactly new but became fixed in its form and flexible enough to present very varied stories on the stage of the chorales. It was the sheer force of Lupe de Vega's creative genius and the fertility of his imagination that achieved just that. I've avoided it so far, but inevitably there is a comparison with Shakespeare given their contemporaneous work and high standing in the history of theatre. Lupe was two years senior to Shakespeare and outlived him by almost two decades. Their careers run remarkably parallel courses, but Shakespeare was no swordsman or adventurer or, as far as we know, a womaniser. And of course, we lack many details in Shakespeare's life. Both playwrights had an incredible perception of human impulses and common motives, and a great gift for empathy. But Shakespeare did not depend on his personal experience. His work is largely that of the imagination. He had probably never travelled abroad and took his inspiration from English history and Italian stories. But he instinctively knew how his characters felt and thought. Lupe's knowledge of the world and the people in it is wider and more tangible, yet paradoxically, never as deep. As a psychologist, he is no Shakespeare, and his work doesn't contain the metaphysical questions that are part of Shakespeare's great triumph. The Spanish and the English will, I suspect, always argue over which was the greatest or most effective poet, each championing their own, and I would suggest that we should leave such comparisons at that. Both were great in their own and different ways. Next time, I'll be looking at the detail of the plays of Lupe de Vega, to get a better understanding of what it was that the Spanish audience at the Corral were being shown and why they appreciated them so much. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed the special episode for Shakespeare's birthday that was released on the 23rd of April. If you missed it, you can find it on the website at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com or on the podcast feed. If you would like to support the podcast, there are links to ko-fi.com and the Patreon members area in the show notes. Thanks everyone for your continued support for the podcast. Please do spread the word and help others find us. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.